I know personally, I'd rather see a cut that a director says, I believe this works. And you know that joke, Rob, that you delivered as Ian in scene three? I cut that shit and I cut the entire scene at the risk of you <laughs> thinking that that's a that's a dicey situation, right? And like, but you and I work well enough to, uh, together, and hopefully, I communicate this well enough to all the directors that, like, that'll never offend me. That won't upset me. I'm not going to hold that against somebody. Um, I'll go great. You know, that was your take on it, and 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 you're fired or you're not. <laughs> so we're turning the corner here. Um, I have a couple lightning round questions for you. Okay. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is Pete Chapman welcoming you to episode six of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And as always, we like to get right to it. We are welcoming Mr. Rob McElhenney of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia of Mythic Quest Ravens Banquet fame uh, to the pod. Uh, backstory, I like to always give you a little backstory before we dive right in. I worked with Rob on um, Mythic Quest episode 108. Uh, Brendan, you should check that out. It's on Apple TV Plus right now. And while I was working on that show, uh, maybe on day three of the shoot, Rob came over to me and asked if I would be down to do any sunny episodes if I was interested. And obviously, um, I jumped at the chance and they um, generously handed me over four of the 10 episodes of season 14. And so um, this interview was recorded in mid-June. We were almost, uh, I guess at that point, it's interesting because the show that I would have done after um, All Rise, which is what I was shut down on production for Much Like the World on March 12th. Um, the next show I was gonna go to was gonna be season two. Uh, a couple episodes of Mythic Quest season two. So um, it was kind of like first opportunity for us to catch up. The quarantine episode is really good. Um, and in the uh, connecting of the dots as to how I ended up working with Rob, for everybody out there, um, it always comes down to who you know. And on my very first episode of TV, which was Grownish uh, 105, I was prepping while Todd Bierman was directing. And we got to talking at our uh, assigned parking spaces uh, at the ABC lot. And we uh, we hit it off. And so when Mythic Quest was looking for directors in season one, Todd said, Rob, you gotta be Pete. And it all kind of took off from there. But I think we have a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. 
it'll be nice to hear from somebody who is not only a show creator, but an actor and a director and uh, has a variety of perspectives to share with you guys. So let's dig in. I'll see you on the other side. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. So I gotta, I gotta, uh, I'm gonna start it off with an interesting question. Um, what do the names Joey Timon and Officer Oscar Hunt mean to you? Well, I believe his name was Joey Timon. Timon, okay. I believe that was, that was the way it was pronounced at the time, I think. But you know what? Sam Waterston may have said it one way, and the actress playing my mother may have said it a different way. I can't remember exactly, but, um, but uh, that would be a Law & Order episode I did in 1997. Okay, that sounds about right. <laughs> and then um, what was the second one? Uh, Officer Oscar Hunt. Oh, was that my name in Fargo? That was your name in Fargo. Okay, okay. And, All right. See, those, I have a better, and that was only a couple of years ago. I have a better memory for 1997. 20 years apart, those two roles. Um, and then uh, this one, what about Ironborn number one? Well, that's easy. <laughs> There's only one show that has Ironborn, as far as I as far as I know, and that would be. Uh, is that was that was that how I was credited in that? I didn't even look yeah. for that. Ironborn number one. All right. Ironborn number one. I thought that was I, I thought that was cool, man, because I remember um, what was it? The gang goes to the water park. Uh-huh. And, uh You had DB and David playing lifeguard number one and lifeguard number two. Yes. So how did, how do those things happen? How did you guys kind of uh, end up not only uh, writing for each other, but acting in each other's work? Well, uh, I found out through uh, a mutual friend that they were fans of Sonny. Um, and I obviously was a fan of Game of Thrones. I think this was like season two or three of Game of Thrones. So it was already, it was gaining momentum, but it wasn't the massive worldwide hit that it was uh, soon to become. And I thought, wow, I'm a fan of, the, of theirs, and they seem to be a fan of Sonny's. Maybe we could go out for drinks and see, you know, if, uh, if, if, uh, if we get along. And we went out for, for dinner, actually, with um, Dan and David and uh, Amanda and Andrea, their uh, spouses, and, and Caitlin and I. And we, had a, we just had a blast. We just had a blast. So then we became really good friends, and from that point forward, always looking for ways in which we can work together in small ways. Yeah, it's funny too because a lot of the, the the folks that do dramas are super funny, <laughs> and a lot of the folks that do uh, like with I mean like you guys like even underneath all the comedy there's always like uh, an issue that you're tackling intelligently, but it's packaged in comedy. So I could it's 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 cool seeing people vibe like that. Yeah, I mean what I find too is you're working in comedy all day long, so the last thing you want to do is go home and watch more comedy. So uh, what I found is that a lot of the people that work in drama tend to know Sonny or Mythic Quest a little bit better than the people that work in comedy and then vice versa, where the people that work in comedy tend to know the dramas a little bit more than they know um, the, the comedies. So um, that's like a, a nice fun cross-pollinization. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the first story that had an impact on you where you were like, man, that was, that was well told, whether it was like, at the water cooler or like somebody in the family or a movie? Wow. Uh, the first story? Yeah. Like any kind of story? I remember, I mean, just being read to, I remember um, my dad reading me The Giving Tree. Did you ever read that book when I was, when I was a kid? 
And I remember that having like a real emotional impact on me. Probably that was maybe the first story I can really remember um, where I just took it with me. And it's still, you know, when I, and then of course I forgot about it for 30 years, 40, 30 years. And then when I had my own kids um, re-engage with it, it's just as, just as affecting. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny. I think of, um, for me, it's always like, it's it, it's super late in life, but it's do the right thing. Like mm-hmm. the first move, like like movie I watched, and I was like, oh man, like I I know these folks, and like I I always uh, talk about like when um, Giancarlo Esposito's Jordans got scuffed. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think you have the same pair of those Jordans in white. Um, yeah. and I'm like man, like I I recognize that on screen, <laughs> and I was like, maybe I could be a filmmaker. It's little yeah, like that, you know. Yeah, well, in terms of like filmmaking or, or movies that really or, or you know, I, I would actually say that it was probably not a movie that got me. It would have been it would have been a TV show. Um, and and it was honestly, I think it was probably this the Thursday night lineup on NBC when I was probably about eight till I was about 12. Yeah. And it would go Cosby Show, mm-hmm. Family Ties, Cheers and Night Court. As a kid. And, Killer lineup, and I wasn't old enough. Like I wasn't allowed to stay up to watch Night Court. I think because my dad felt like it was a little bit um, too adult, but also it was nine thirty, so we had to go to bed. But uh, I found that a little bit later in, in life. But those first three shows, Cosby Show, Family Ties, and Cheers, um, I just remember watching them over and over and over again. And then when they went into syndication, I just couldn't get enough. I mean, I've seen every episode of all yeah. of those shows. Did you, we're, we're the same age. Did you, did you watch um, the Gary Shandling show? Of course. Yeah. I, yeah. That was an interesting one. Cause I found like no, none of my friends watched it. They were like, what, who? Yeah. Super dry, super witty, but like that, that was some funny stuff. And so inside, I mean, it was about a show about, it was, it was just so um, self-aware of what it was. I believe, wasn't it called it's the Gary Shandling show? It even yeah. had like a bizarre, <laughs> a bizarre title. Right. And and then the song, the, the theme song was, this is the theme to Gary's show. Yeah. Remember yeah. that? Super. And so, yeah, and I, that was like one of those that just kind of broke a lot of rules of television um, that uh, that I always I was always impressed with. And then, of course, when he went on to do Larry Sanders, he did it again. Yeah. Did you watch the, um, oh, God, what was Chris Elliott's show? Um, Get a Life. Get a Life. Did you yeah, watch yeah. That? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we were watching the same shows. We were watching the same shows. But again, that was like so bizarre and strange. And and I just remember like keying into it in a way that other people would be like, why are you watching this? And I'd be like, I don't know. It's just, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. How do you define comedy? Oh, I don't. <laughs> that's not my that's not my job. I don't define shit. <laughs> so uh, maybe this is an easier one. I, I, I like to say, like, if I were, if you caught me in a dark alley and you said, what do you prefer? I'd say directing, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I, I wrote so I'd have things to direct. I produced so I could make the thing I wrote to direct. Um, but you cre- you write, create, produce, act. Like, what what's the one thing if you had to pick that people, that you would do uh, over and over again? It's hard to say. It depends on the day, um, because when you're, you know, when you're writing, writing is the hardest part. I find um, it's the most, it's it's the most enraging and and terrifying because you're just walking into an empty whiteboard. 
uh, and you have to fill that that whiteboard. But when it's working, and when you and when you are feeling like like you're in the zone, and it's just it's just you you crack through whatever that problem is you're having or that story issue. Uh, it's just so. Um, it's such a powerful feeling because you are you are creating something from from nothing, and that and that just feels so good. But the the thing about acting that's fun is that you you get to share that with other people, and you're you're sharing an uh, an emotional experience with with other uh, emotion forward people, <laughs> and so and that and that can be that can be that can still be comedic, right? When you're vibing with somebody. Uh, on a comedic level, it's still an emotional and very personal relationship that you're having with them. Um, and and I find that, especially on a comedy, I find that to just be more fun in and of itself. Um, it's less pr- there's less pressure, um, and you're just there to kind of have fun. And that's ultimately the job of the writers and the producers of the direct and the directors is to allow the space for those people to enjoy themselves and have fun. And that's why actors get coddled as much as they do. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about uh, Sunny. I'm sure some folks know the know the journey, but I can imagine between you know uh, Joey Timon, right? And uh, what now? What year did Sunny uh, premiere? Two thousand two thousand five. Two thousand five. So that that's a, a nice seven. Let me know. Let me redo my math. That's an eight yeah. year period. Um, like, what kind of what was the journey of getting that show on the air, and like, what kind of compelled you to create that thing? Uh, desperation. I, I just wasn't, I wasn't working, um, at all. And, and I wasn't getting in my, from my vantage point, I wasn't getting, getting the opportunities, uh, that I needed to, to, to succeed. Um, and so we just decided, well, I, I'll just start writing, uh, um, because I wanted to try and create my own opportunities. Cause I was an actor really. I don't never consider myself a writer. Um, and then I just started reading books on, on, on screenplays. So I started writing films. Um, and then I wrote a film, um, that wound up getting optioned by, um, a company called Propaganda, which has since gone bankrupt. And then, um, and Paul Schrader, the director signed on to, to, to direct it. And so I was working with him and then, you know, like a year went by and nothing really happened with the movie. And I just knew that I never wanted to put myself in that position again. So I knew I couldn't afford to write a film that I could shoot that may, but maybe I could figure out how to do a short and then take that short and, and just shoot it and figure out a way to shoot it so that I could see something all the way through from beginning to end. And that's, that's kind of how Sonny started. Right. And so was it, um, cause you're the only one of the cast who's actually from Philly, right? Yeah. Um, so what happened when you think of the show, like, uh, I don't know when you were tossing the idea around, what was your, what was your kind of thesis for the show? Well, the original conception, uh, was not called it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It was called it's always sunny on TV. And we wanted to make a show. I wanted to make a show that felt like it was the anti friends. Not that I didn't love Friends. I, I, I really loved Friends. I've seen every episode of Friends. Uh, I thought that was a fantastic show. But that show had been done before. And the, the theme song uh, of that, that show was I'll Be There For You. And it was telling the story of these friends who would always be there for each other. And I thought maybe we could do a show that would be the opposite of that, um, which would kind of fly in the face of what traditional television was understood to be, which was you want to watch people you like, 
uh, and that they need to be likable. Now, I, I, I agree that you want to watch people you enjoy watching, but that doesn't mean you have to like them on a personal level. I mean, so, you know, Tony Soprano is a, a, a psychopath, <laughs> but we loved watching him. So I thought, well, maybe we can do a version of that in comedy and make these sort of awful sociopathic people um, enjoyable to watch. That would be a, that would be a challenge. So uh, I made them naturally. I made them actors. And and so they were, it was that was just a function of being in Los Angeles and having um, only the equipment of basically camcorders and and our own apartments to shoot it. So it just felt easier to make them actors. Uh, and then that's what we made. So the first two episodes of the show, which were essentially just two short films that we um, were going to take around to town, were, were about three actors. And, uh, well, actually four actors, because Sweet D is also uh, an actor in the show. And then um, when we sold it, we had a number of offers from different um, studios and networks. But it was also around the time that... Um, Entourage had not premiered yet, but it was like maybe in its pilot form. There was the Lisa Kudrow show um, where, um, was that, was she an, yeah, she was an actor on that show. And then Larry David, and then the Matt LeBlanc show where he was an actor, and Joey. And everybody kind of collectively felt like maybe there's just too many shows about actors. So so John Landgraf came back to me, uh, president and CEO of, of FX, and said, hey, is there any way we can change their profession and put them somewhere else? And my thought was, sure. We just need to give them uh, a job that allows them to have their days free so that they can get in, into, all these, <laughs> into all these problems. So we just had them own a bar and put it in Philadelphia. Yeah. I love that, though, because it's like, it's like the... Uh... It's like oh, the reverse of a road movie, you know what I mean? Where like you get in a car and anything can happen. Like at Patty's, anybody can come through. So any scenario seems uh, realistic in the world of the show. Um, so when you guys, you know, you've got season 15 coming up. Um, how do you sit down and approach what you're gonna do over those, you know, 10 or more episodes? Well, usually the first the first few days, we're just throwing out ideas. We're just sitting there for we 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 now try to make the writers' room as fun as it as it can possibly be. So we usually come in around ten, ten or eleven, and we won't stay past three. Um, that's with a lunch break in there, just because we feel like at a certain point you get diminishing returns, um, and also we just have certain efficiencies as it comes to Sunny and understanding what's going to work and what's not going to work. So. The first few days are just throwing out different ideas of like what's been going on in the world, um, what can we satirize, uh, what can we, what do we want to see these characters getting into, what haven't we seen them do before, um, and what is nobody else on television doing or talking about. And once, and, and the truth of the matter is, the world just keeps offering us up material for us to 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 jump into. And so we try to jump in, we try to jump in head first. Yeah. How do you see like all the, everything going on now affecting, do you, do you find that will make it more challenging to find stories or does it offer more, uh, uh, more real estate to explore these topics? Yeah, I think, it, I think it opens up more opportunity. I mean, Look, one of the things that we've always strived to do is is just open up and continue conversation and communication. 
and and we feel like we've always felt like if if we're you know season one of Sunny, we did an episode called um, Charlie Wants an Abortion, and you know it was some like it was some heavy shit, but uh, at the time on broadcast network on broadcast uh, networks, you couldn't say the word abortion in your show. That was a standard. You could not even literally say the word abortion. And we thought that's insane. I mean, it, it's, it's an issue that regardless of how you feel about it, uh, on what side um, of the aisle you sit, the idea that you can't even discuss the idea of the word on a television series felt anathema to the entire idea of what it is to be an American. If we can't communicate with one another, then we're going to, we're going to fail. Uh, now we take that to the extreme because we have extreme characters. And in doing that, we find ourselves that like retroactively, we look back and say, oh man, we fucked that up because, but because we're, 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 we're navigating through difficult waters, but we always look back and say, well, what, what was our intention? What were we trying to do? What were we trying to say? And if we feel like our intention and the context um, is appropriate, then we, we, we usually feel pretty good about it. Doesn't mean we don't retroactively try and go back and, and, and fix some of those things. But, but ultimately we realized like, oh, it was just our own ignorance uh, at the time to you know maybe how hurtful this particular thing could be, but that was not our intention. Um, and so that there's no excuse for that, but let's figure out a way in which we can ameliorate that moving forward. Yeah. Do, do, does the, uh, I know the network knows like the, the links that you guys go to, to explore issues in comedy where they ever like, ah. <laughs> that one's a little, that we're, we're not sure about that one. Or do they really give you the, the, the room to play around? They do. I mean, they, not to say that they, they just let us do whatever we want. No, they, they push back. I mean, John and, and the team over there um, push back, but, but they never tell us what we can and can't do. Um, usually the conversation gets into, well, what are you trying to say? Because we feel like what we're seeing or what we're reading uh, or what you're pitching is not saying what you think it is. And that's really helpful because that is somebody who's really trying to not force what their position is or, or their own creative ideas, but they're trying to get out the best in you. And that's something that Landgraf has always done and something that's always been a real asset to us. It's someone who's sitting there and saying, okay, I get it. I might not even agree with what you're saying, but I'm going to help you try and say it the way that you're expressing it to me now, as opposed to the way that you, you've written it or the way that you've shot it. That's really helpful. Right. That's, that's super true, man. I remember, um, Cause I taught at NYU for uh, about five years and like, I took all these like things I hated in my time there, which was like a lot of times you could tell who was the professor for a particular filmmaker because all their films looked like what that professor's notes would, would uh, kind of guide them toward. And I was like, I got to find a way to help them do what they are trying to do. Um, as best as possible without kind of putting my, my hand and my seasonings in the pot. Um, and did you find that, that students rose to that challenge, rose to that challenge? Because that, that's the tricky part too, is like allowing people, I, I find that a lot of people will come up and they'll say, they'll ask me, Hey, how do I, um, how do I make my own show? And th that's, that's a very fair question. And I'll say, um, well, 
the truth of the matter is you have a, a, a camera in your, in your phone that is more powerful uh, than the camera we shot season 11 of Sunny on. So you can go make your show right now. You can learn how to edit it on your laptop that you have, um, or you can borrow a friend's and you, and you can go make your show. And then if there's like a series of follow-up questions after that, I realize like you're never going to make your show. So like you, you have to, at, at a certain point, you give people an environment in which they can thrive or the opportunity to thrive with the equipment that you have. And then from that point forward, they have to take it and t take it and run. So did you find that like stu you watch certain students be able to, to use that? Yeah. Use that leeway? I think like the perfect analogy too for what you're saying is like like when somebody asks you like hey man like what are you doing in the gym and then you like give them a whole like workout or and then you just see their eyes glaze over like yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep that up yeah <laughs> and so it's kind of like um there were those for whom you would find like you just are not going to run this marathon but the, I think the ones that I think to your point you could always kind of identify by the questions right mm -hmm. And I think that um, a lot of times I tried to find a way to throw questions back at them so they could come to the conclusion themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like a student will pitch a film and it's like, well, what are you, what are you trying to say? Okay, well, let, let's have uh, talk about examples of that kind of story. All right, well, how'd they do it in that story? And then you see them like recognize like, oh, I'm not doing any of that in this script. I'll go back to the drawing board or the other one is I'm going to defend why it works in mine, yet it's never worked in storytelling across the world, but it works in mine. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, I, I, can't <laughs> wait watch, I can't wait to watch that cut. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, so on the iPhone, people have some, have a, have a higher quality than what you guys shot up until season 11. Was the, was there an aesthetic kind of, push on you from the network because the show has its own aesthetic did that did they want you to upgrade the production value at a certain point um yes however it was not forced upon us but you have to keep in mind that we shot sunny seasons one through i have to go back and check for sure but one through five at least one through five four three aspect ratio standard def i mean you go back and watch those now and it's like you you can't believe you can't believe it we, we've i think we've stretched the image i can't i can't remember how they've done it or uh i haven't really checked on on the um syndication stuff but like i don't know if they stretched it or if they if they have letter bars either way um just the move from standard def to high def was a big debate and we look back on it now and we're like how could we even be debating that but our feeling was look the the sunny's aesthetic has a certain charm to it. That's what we're going for. It should be down and dirty and it shouldn't be polished and pretty. Um, so we thought maybe if we transitioned into high def, is that really going to hurt us? And then, uh, and then also going 16.9 to, to accommodate all of the, the new flat screen TVs that were coming up. And that's how long, how old this television show is, is that we were making the show when most screens had a four, three aspect ratio. And those are, those are conversations that of course the network said, Hey, you guys do whatever you want, but you're just going to get blasted. You're going to be dinosaurs. And they were right. So we made those adjustments. Right. 
So this this is the uh, the advice portion, man. You know, one thing we have in common is we we work we've worked with our wives. <laughs> I've uh, I've directed Kelly for two episodes, and according to IMDb, it looks like maybe you and Caitlin have done 153 more, yeah. more or less. Um, what's your advice for a long career and a long marriage? Yes, well, as it pertains specifically to our relationship. Um, we we were fortunate enough to have been uh, we we developed a, a professional rapport for a few years before we even started a romantic relationship. So so that's just sort of carried over. Um, we were friends for so long, and that actually has helped us immensely in our relationship because we know that there's always that to fall back on, which is our friendship is is first, and that we truly get along really well as human beings, and that we can find a way through. Um, any, any issue, uh, long after we've been married now for, uh, almost, wow, 12 years. Um, and, and, you know, the, the initial fire burns out and now you're like, okay, now we're sure, certainly very passionate for one another and attracted to one another. But, you know, those, those lulls set in just like they set in for every relationship. And what can you fall back on? Are you good companions? And so that's really helpful. And then as far as it pertains to our professional relationship, because we've always had that, we just continue to carry that over and over and over again. Nevertheless, I still have to be really careful with how I give some direction. <laughs> as, I'm sure awesome. you, as I'm sure you did too. Well, I, you know, it's funny, man, because like the first time that uh, uh, I directed her, I was like, oh, like... I'm getting more questions from you than anyone I've had on set all day. And you're kind of like, take it easy. I'm just trying to get through the scene. Um, so yeah, you have to, you have to have that finesse there. Yeah. But, um, well, that was on her show, right? So you, you were coming into her world. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, she's showing you up. Yeah. And, and a world and where there's uh although I've only done two, she's probably I think she's probably up to about 150 episodes. So like yeah. those characters are so um, like well-drawn and like fully explored that it's, it's always a challenge for a director to come in and kind of know what hasn't been attempted or what is like uh, what the, what the quicksand areas might be um, because they've explored it all. I'm I'm so empathetic to that. So any director that comes into the sunny experience, I'm I'm, I, I, I and I hope I hope you felt this as you were uh, coming on board. That I'm just very conscious of the fact that people are walking into a show that has been up and running for 15, 14 years, uh, in your case, and so it's like it's a very difficult thing because we have a way that things work, and yet we still want to bring in people that have ideas and. And, and yet there are things we know just won't work and we don't want to stifle pe people's creativity, but we also have to like, we also, you know, the hours we like to keep and we like, we love our families and we love to go home to them. But whereas like with Mythic Quest, you know, we, as, that was great to have everybody there for that first season and, and specifically you because you were bringing something to a brand new show. And we kind of had the template because uh, David... Uh, Gordon Green shot the pilot, but we're still, you're always kind of finding your footing. And so it was cool where you'd be able to, I remember very specifically, there was a scene we shot and you were showing me some camera move. You were explaining it to me. And I was like, Pete, it's going to take forever. I, I, I don't know. It's 7.30 AM. Like I got to shoot, like, let's just, let's just move. And then you're like, just come watch the rehearsal. And I came and watched the rehearsal and I was like, sold. Yep. That's it. Got it. 
And then you're so, I'm so grateful that like, yeah, like, of course you hire talented people. You want them to come in and challenge what you think the show is to make it better. That's, that's, that's the gig. Otherwise, why bring a director in? Right. So, you know, those are, I'm always like fascinated with how, you know, you and directors like you are able to kind of jump in and navigate those waters. It's, it's interesting, man. I mean, I, I've, I've stepped into this career with probably undiagnosed OCD. Um, so like, I mean, when I first had that meeting with you for Mythic Quest, I was like, all right, let me, let me just rewatch all these sunny episodes so I don't miss anything. You, you know what I mean? Like, I just want to, because there's always something that is communicated about the artist consciously and subconsciously, I think, when you just take in what they do. Um, and I like the challenge of having to, some, like, I feel like if you have infinite options, then sometimes you lose your creativity. Um, but when you look, when you go from show to show and, you, and you're like, okay, here's the DNA and let me hop into it, but still kind of keep an eye on anything I can offer that they might like uh, want to take a stab at, um, it's cool. You know, I, I told folks in some Zoom call I did that I really was thankful for doing Sunny when I did Station 19. And, and it seems weird, but because like when you have eight fucking fire trucks and and like 10 people like talking and three cameras, like I'm trying to block this so it all collapses into um, coverage with, with maybe one or two specials so I can make mm -hmm. the day. And that was um, that was imposed creatively on me by the way that you guys uh, kind of shoot the show so you can keep it fresh get the comedy and keep the hours mm -hmm. um and so it's like i'm always taking like a little bit of something from a, a show and applying it somewhere else um and you kind of and that's though i think you kind of an, you answered one of my questions before like how do you work with uh directors as a director but i can speak to that like you guys really do give the room um for the exploration which is great well it also helps and this is something that i i whenever People are looking to get into, into writers' rooms uh, or looking to come in to direct television specifically. I can't speak to movies. Um, that something often gets lost or not taught or talked about enough, I should say, um, is that just coming in and being a, and some people can't control this, uh, and just being somebody that you want to spend time with, that you like, that you enjoy, uh, is such an important part of the process because you're getting into long hours. Um, and not as long on Sunny, but still like intense hours because money's being spent and you want to get, uh, you want to get it right. And you're dealing with people who love what they do and are passionate about what they do. And everybody feels as though what they do is the most important part of the process, which they should, that's a part of the deal. And then on, on, on top of that, it's just tricky to navigate creative discussions, especially if you're dealing with difficult subject matters. So it really comes down to, do I want to engage with this person? And I'm, am I engaging with his or her ego right now? Or am I engaging with their creative brain? Because that's what I want. I want their brain and their heart uh, to be fighting with me as and fighting, you know, collaborating, but I mean like challenging me um, but I don't want their ego or my ego for that matter to be, to be challenging each other. Cause that doesn't get shit. Hey, this is Michael Spiller. 
I'm a producing director on shows like The Mindy Project and The Mighty Ducks. You're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. Let's hop to Mythic Quest. So how did you decide on the writer's room for that show, but also like what attracted you to that story um, as, a, as opposed to Sonny? Well, I was brought in actually Ubisoft, which is a, which is a gaming studio, because they were fans of Sonny, approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in making a show about a video game company? And I said no, um, because I have no... I, haven't, I just didn't have any interest in it. Um, I'd seen versions of, of getting of movies or television that, that lived in the world of gaming development or video games, and I just felt like they were kind of, I don't know, like surface-level cheap shots, and, and also it just wasn't something that necessarily interested me. And they said, well, just come take a trip up to Montreal and, and just take a tour through our gaming studio. And I literally said yes because I'd never been to Montreal before, and... And it's one of the world's great cities, so I'd go up there for a weekend and check it out. And and as I did, and I went into the gaming studio, it really only took about an hour, maybe less, half an hour before I realized that we really had a, an opportunity for a great show. Because I was meeting all these very passionate people um, who were there for the same thing. They loved video games, and they loved specifically the game that they were working on. There were different departments each one feeling like their department was the most important department, which they should, um, and that everybody um, had to navigate massive egos because they were the best at what they did. They were at the top of their game, uh, and yet they had to collaborate and work together for a common goal. And I thought, I know an industry that's very similar to that, and I know it very well. And and it's I found it fascinating and interesting. So that's really what... That's really what drew me to the to the story in the first place. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like now that you say it, I feel like film, TV, restaurants, and video games are like built on the same uh, foundation of a lot of money has to be spent, a lot of creativity, but doesn't mean people want to eat there, doesn't mean people want to watch it, doesn't mean people want to play it. And you have to find a way to navigate that. Like, I'm sure... Uh, you meet somebody who's like the best person out there who makes black, uh, grass blades, you know, flow in the wind in some video game. Um, yeah. Was the game already like, was it pre-existing or was it something that was created for the show? It was something that was created for the for the show. So that we, we were using pre-existing assets that they digital assets that they have. Um, created over the years for various games. And then they created a sandbox, which was just uh, a series of environments. Uh, and then they would plug those other characters or assets in uh, where appropriate. That's why it was great to have uh, Ubisoft as a partner, because not only could they give us their, their the, expertise the expertise of what it is, what it is to, to work in one of these companies, 
um, but then also they could they could deliver to us uh, in, incredible gaming assets that you wouldn't normally get. Right. Let's talk about. Hmm. Let's talk about the quarantine episode, but also, um, gosh, I'm, I'm not going to remember the title, but the the standalone that you did in not standalone, but um, uh, the one you did in season one where we kind of went back in time to get a little bit of, of backstory. Like what, I guess just talk to me about those as a director, you know what I mean? Because they're, they, they're each kind of a little different from the rest of the season, but they apply so much context to the story. Um, how does your approach differ on those, if anything? Yeah, um, the episode you're referring to is called A Dark, Quiet Death. And the reason that we wanted to do the episode in the first place was just because we knew that what we were making by design was a fairly traditional workplace comedy. And we knew that we would be able to stretch creatively and make it a little bit more quirky and original um, than the first few episodes um, would seem to to demonstrate. Um, but we, but we, what we thought we and I think we were fairly successful in doing so, was that that was by design. We wanted to make something feel as though it was accessible to everybody and then slowly start to invade with these like weird, quirky um, ideas. And one of those, and, and this is just born out of being inspired by what everybody else is doing. Um, just looking around and watching shows and and getting a real sense of like, whoa, people are exploring comedy in a completely different way than, than they've ever done before. And there's no more, there's no more rules. So how can we do that? How can we explore those, uh, our version of what that might be while also recognizing that we're still setting up a very traditional, uh, sitcom. So that's where we came up with this idea of an episode right in the middle that, um, would be com almost completely different tonally, wouldn't have any of the same characters yet would still feel of the show and about the show and would explore all of the thematics that we're exploring within the context of the f comedy forward episodes that we were making subsequent to that and then after that. Um, and, and so that's when we came up with this idea of telling a, sto a love story, really, the, the, the inception and then corruption and dissolution of a relationship as seen through the eyes of, uh, of a video game or the prism of, of, of the development of a, of a video game. Because ultimately nobody gives a shit about video games. Um, in, in terms of watching stories about them, they want to they want to watch stories about people. So that's really what that episode was born out of. And then at every turn in 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 working with Jake and Kristen, who were who were the actors um, in the episode, I just wanted to make yeah they're incredible. Um, so much so to the point where I was like Jake, dude, I'm the star of this show. <laughs> fucking dick. People are gonna watch this and be like, why don't we? I want this guy to be the star of the show, and they did. But you know what though, I feel like. What what I took away from that episode, I, I there's like uh, so many different muscles that are being worked across that one show, like Mythic Quest, but in that particular episode, like the time and 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 care taken to like live in the moments and to be like, and also like it's shot a little differently. Like we're living, we're kind of watching it from a little bit more of a distance and letting the the beats play out in front of us with. Uh, you feel immersed in it because it's not guided by like in a, like snappy editing or a bunch of different shots. Like the coverage felt just right to 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 go along with the emotional weight of what's happening, and it's like this thing that's like a a, a real like 
pit stop from the from the rest of the show that I thought was really really awesome. And you know, you directed that, so yeah, it was it was just it was just really a, a fun experience. I mean, and just in terms of what the experience was like, it was great for for for, for me and for the crew to be able to shoot that at the at the very end because by the end of those eight episodes it's so much work to do a first year show because you're really just finding it and and figuring it out on the fly and by the end of it you're really sick of it even if it's only eight episodes you're just like all right that was great and i need a break and so it was nice to work with the crew uh on something completely different and yet still felt of the show that was that was really the goal the quarantine episode was completely different what was the impetus for making that? Because uh, you had started season one. Um, you what? You maybe what? Three days into production on episode one when when everything hit. And, yes, we we were, yeah, that's exactly right. We were three days in and we had to shut down. And so then you were like, uh, we got to make something to speak to this time, or what was the what pushed you to uh, make that show? No, um, we honestly, I just wanted to get the crew paid. For a few weeks, I just wanted I, you know we we we're, we're we're in a business where we we go up and we go down and we go up and we go down and we go up and we go down and so traditionally um, the ways that the, the way that the crews operate are they go up and then they make a bunch of money and then they go down and they can prepare for that and uh, obviously everybody in the world uh, is dealing with, the, with this very thing but you know specifically for our crew. Um, they were not prepared for this, as as was as was no one. But but a lot of people, lot of people had, had just come off a long vacation uh, in between their last job, and so there's this. I, I'm not sure, um, you know, if if people really truly understand this, but the the point one percent of Hollywood who are millionaires and live um, behind gates and and on, uh, on private islands. Uh, that is not what this industry is. The industry is working class people. Um, so we just felt like if we could do anything to get people paid and up and working for a few weeks, we should try to do that. So that's that's really the impetus. Right. And then the tech, I read in an article that you got like 45 iPhones or something from Apple in like a week and then just hopped right into production. Um, how long How long was the shoot for that? From from conception um, to delivery was three weeks, so that it was an incredibly fast turnaround, and we were only able to do that uh, because, well, there's a number of different reasons. Really, we were able to do that because of the the the, the entire crew coming together in a way that I've never seen before, uh, and the ingenuity of of creative people. But beyond that, the technology um, and calling, being able to call Apple Cupertino. Um, who are obviously our partners on this, and say, I said, I need, I need 30 iPhones and, and 20 sets of, of AirPods by Friday. Do you think you can get them to us? And uh, our, our rep, Terry Pitts uh, at Cupertino, was, didn't miss a beat. She was on the phone with me, and she said, I've already tracked them down. They'll be at your house by 5 o'clock tonight. And that was on a Sunday. So it helps. That helps. And then from there, it was just everybody... Um, you know, strapping in and, and we wrote the script in three days. And then the shoot was strange because the prep was the most difficult part, the prep and then the post, which was infinitely more difficult to do um, from home than 
and and and, and at which the speed and uh, the speed at which they did it. But production itself, once we were up and running, uh, that was easy because once everybody pressed record, there's only one camera angle. <laughs> right? You're not getting coverage. That's that's the coverage. So we would just run one take and I would or I would just run it and then we would do the we would do it, you know, six, seven times per scene, and then we'd move on to the next one. Right. Right. That's awesome, man. Um we have a we have a director audience here, and I love to get a question in just about a, a specific part of the process. Um, what are you looking for as a producer uh, and a creator when you get a director's cut in post? Yeah, so so one thing that really, really saves your life and you feel such a tremendous amount of joy and gratitude is when you get a director's cut that is 40, 30 to 40% of what you're looking for in the episode. And I say that like with, with all honesty, that it's impossible for anybody. Like it's impossible. Like Charlie and I have been working on Sonny for 15 years. If Charlie alone worked on a cut, it still wouldn't be it would be about 75% of what I and I was looking for, right? And that's because he can't get into my head. And if I did the same thing, it would be the same thing. And we couldn't be any more aligned in what we're trying to do with the show. It's just that you can't get into someone else's head. So you get it as close as possible. And what I found is, um, you know, 30 to 40% is like, that's a game changer because you're, you're now taking weeks off of that part of the process. Sounds, um, like, sounds um, like baseball, right? You hit, you hit like 300, you're, <laughs> you're yes, killing it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's really, I mean, truly that's not, like, like I said, I'm using the Charlie analogy because I, I want to make sure that it doesn't come across as offensive. Like to, to say that oh, I'm only expecting 30% of what I have in my mind. It's not like what I have in my mind is some like grand vision that, that, that is impenetrable and you can't change that. It's just that at the end of the day, there you know it goes through a certain amount of uh, filters to become the show that it does. And you know, Meg, myself, and David are still a three-headed monster. Meg Gans, um, David Hornsby, and myself are the executive producers on the show, and everything run eventually runs through us. And even that becomes a, a tremendous amount of collaboration and figuring it out because you know none of us can get into each other's heads. So what you wind up with is you know, in the end, it's never a hundred percent of the vision that you had when you started, but it shouldn't be. Then, then you're a painter, which is great. Sit at home and paint your shit. And then at the end you have what you wanted. But to me, I, part of the fun of all this is experiencing it with other people, collaborating with them, having them challenge me on what my pre preconceived notions are, not only about my work, but about the world and my worldview. And then eventually coming to some, um, some consensus on what this show is and then you put it out to the world and it's done and even though i'll look back on it now i'll i'll, I'll see cuts from i'll see finished episodes from season four of sunny and wish i could go back in the editing room to fix it huh. i think it's important too for folks to remember like it's there's always more like not fat but there's more um material in the script because you don't know you can't write a, a 22 page episode right and and think that everything you shoot is going to work um what what's your theory on 
cutting jokes. Cause for me, I, I, I don't ever cut the jokes because I don't, I, a, I, I it, I'm not trying to imply like, I didn't think it was funny. I want like you guys as the creators to, to be able to look at the, all the jokes land. Um, but sometimes like if a scene's not working, I might put it at the end of the timeline. So you have an edited version, but like, what, are there any tips that you have for directors when they're trying to fine tune? Because, um, you know, you, you, you just want, you want to protect the, the integrity of the show, but you still want to show like, I had this kind of perspective on it, but it's a, it's, yep. a, it's a dance. Yeah. Well, I would say this, everybody's different. Everybody's different. So I, I can only speak to what I personally would rather see um, from the from the cuts. Uh, that means like the ed- the editor's cut because the editors will do a cut and then the directors will do a cut. And generally what we'll see is the director's cut. But then sometimes we'll, we'll say, oh, okay, can I see the edited version of the editor's cut version of this? And then it, what you're looking for um, is, again, what I'm looking for, I should say, is... I want to see an episode that works. I'm not so precious about any joke or any scene that, it, it, and as you see, and you know, but the the vast uh, majority of the audience doesn't know that there are scenes in every one of those episodes from MythQuest that we shot that didn't wind up in the show. Multiple scenes sometimes in some episodes. And we just can't hesitate to cut them out and kill them for the sake of the of the show as a whole, because what you find is the micro might work, the the scene might work, the joke might work, but when you look at the macro, it just doesn't play. And then all of a sudden, everything after that doesn't work because the flow isn't right. And if you might have a great, really well executed scene, but it falls flat, and the reason it falls flat has nothing to do with the scene, it has to do with four scenes previous, Um, where that slowed everything down and fucked you for the rest of the episode. And that's just a judgment call. So I know personally, I'd rather see a cut that a director says, I believe this works. And you know that joke, Rob, that you delivered as Ian in scene three? I cut that shit and I cut the entire scene at the risk of you (laughs) thinking that, that's a that's a dicey situation, right? And like, but you and I work well enough to, uh, together, and hopefully, I communicate this well enough to all the directors that, like, that'll never offend me. That won't upset me. I'm not going to hold that against somebody. Um, I'll go great. You know, that was your take on it, and 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 you're fired or you're not. <laughs> so we're turning the corner here. Um, I have a couple lightning round questions for you. Okay. Um, what are you binging right now? Oh, <laughs> um, Dead to Me, um, yeah. which I just started watching. It's fantastic. Um, uh, uh, black, black as fuck, I'm binging. And, you know, the truth of the matter is I don't tend, to, like we were talking about before, I don't tend to watch comedy, but I'm doing a bunch of panels now with um, other showrunners. And so I'm like, oh, shit, if I do these panels, I have to make sure I'm watching their shows. And of course, of course, I start watching them and I love them because they're fantastic shows. So I was just, I'm so grateful to be doing panels with Liz um, Feldman and, and Kenya Barris because now all of a sudden I'm going back and I'm being able to watch all their shows and they're as fantastic as everybody uh, is talking about. Uh, and, and Chef's Table. Those two and Chef's Table. Yeah, I'm yeah. nothing like a cooking show, man. Nothing like a cooking show. 
if you can answer this, favorite episode of Sunny, favorite episode of Mythic Quest? Impossible. I mean, it's just it's it's an interesting question because it's like my experience with the with the episodes are so comp- so far removed from what the final um, delivered episode is, and I remember, especially if it's like a long time ago, ago, I just remember the experience, and I I kind of forget about the episodes, and then we go back and watch the episodes. I'm like, oh wow, that was really funny, and I remember making it, and it was miserable. So I have this like skewed idea of what the episode is. Um, so it's really hard. It's really hard to say. Is there maybe one, uh, and this might be just as hard, but of which you're like most proud? I would say without a doubt that the quarantine episode is the episode that I'm probably most proud of, uh, probably in, in just in terms of production uh, in my entire career. Uh, because of the speed at which we did it, because I think it hit every emotional beat we wanted to hit, uh, because I think it was really funny, but most importantly, because I've just never seen a group of people come together in the way that that group of people came together to, to, for, for a common goal and to have so much um, passion, but so much patience with each other uh, and so much respect for each other and respect for each other's positions and their jobs. And um, I, I, I'm really, truly, really, truly proud of that episode. I think I texted you, but that was, that was one of the best things that Kelly and I have watched since we've been, since March 12th, <laughs> you know what I mean? When everybody came home and it's all we do is we try and we try and wait now until five o'clock to start watching things. So we don't become like full on couch potatoes. Um, but that episode, like, I think it caught, it caught a moment in time, like super accurately while also progressing the characters in the show and, mm-hmm. and you know I, I think it was i think it was spot on man so thank you thank you yeah it's getting a lot of it's getting a lot of positive attention which is what you know we we just at the very at the very least we wanted we are a comedy we wanted to make something that made people laugh and um and at best we could make people feel a little bit less alone and a little bit more optimistic about the future um and i i, I hope we achieve that i i feel like we did we did what, what are you binging Oh man, right now it, I, it's funny you ma- you mentioned Jack. I, I've been I was binging Stumptown, um, uh, just because a lot of times things become uh, potential job related, you know. So I like to catch up and view things. Um, God, what it? Oh, I, I I whatever. No shame. Uh, we just watched uh, the what is it? The sunset. The the real estate. Oh yeah, on- yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, selling selling sunset, selling, all selling sunset. sunset. Yeah, which ironically, man, because we're working on our house, like I I I positioned it as I'm learning about you know landscapes and uh, whatever. But I, I was watching it. I was in there. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and yeah, I think that's God. I think that's really it that I've been in right now. Oh, the good the good fight. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching that. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I'm going through right now um, every like different network and trying to like make a list of all the shows that I'm interested in and would love to, you know, direct and kind of have those uh, begin those reach out meetings and all the stuff that us directors have to do to get on people's radar. Um, so I'll be, I'll probably have a better answer for that next week. 
Mm -hmm. um, if you could have a beer at Patty's with two people, dead or alive, who would it be? Ever? Ever. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's the, that's an unfair that's an unfair question. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I'll, I'll just say the first person that popped into my head um, was Muhammad Ali. I feel like I feel like that would be a really fun that would be a really fun conversation. I think I hope. Yeah. I hope I could keep up. That would be that would be the that would be that would be one. And then Christ, I mean, come on. I'm not even Muhammad Ali. I can't top right. that. I mean, that's good. You, you you can you can have a better conversation too, one on one. Um, all right, and then the the last one um, of the lightning round. Uh, who should be our next guest? And uh, if you can connect us, yeah. Yes, um, your next guest should be. Well, have you talked to Kenya? Uh, I I haven't yet. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out and uh, shoot him a little message. But yeah, he's on the you, list. Yeah, you know him. Um, you know between, between him and you, actually, um, you guys have hired me more than anybody else. I've really? done I've done six grownish, four blackish, and a mixedish. So that's eleven ishes. And then I guess with you got four sunnies and. Uh -huh. I guess three mythic. Well, when when things get back going, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, man, that's, that's cool. Those are good families. Well, he said something I had never met him before, and um, we did a panel together. And I, I, I'd obviously seen Blackish, um, and then I started going back and watching um, Black AF, which I loved. And we did the panel, and I just assumed, and he was a super nice guy, and um, I just assumed that he had never seen Sonny um, before. And as I assume that nobody in our industry has really seen Sonny, um, just because it, it, we're so far outside of the kind of industry, really, um, in our own little bubble. And one of the questions was, what show, past or present, would you, if you could, be in the writer's room of? Um, and I, both Liz Feldman and I said the same thing, which was Golden Girls. And Kenya said, Sonny, season two. And my mouth hit the floor. I couldn't, I was having an out-of-body experience. Like I, it was so far out of left field to think that it was, that Sonny was something that he had even, that was even on his radar, let alone um, as, he, as he extrapolated on it, that, that seemed to be a, a, a source of um, inspiration for him at a certain point in his, his career and life was like really an awesome thing, awesome thing to hear. Man, that's dope, man. Um, yeah. But what's, what's wait? I didn't answer you? your I didn't answer your question. Oh, oh yeah. So because I said Kenny, and you're, he's already on your list. Um. Okay. What about what? Since we're talking about dead to me, what about Liz Feld, Feldman? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. Yeah, I I, I just met her, but I'll but I'll reach out to her. And you know what's funny too? I I I I, I remember when um because <laughs> I'm listening to script notes now. And I remember when Craig uh, won the award for Chernobyl. This is how this is how bad I am. I was like, that guy looks really fucking familiar. <laughs> and then I went, I was like, wait, he was in my Mythic Quest episode. Yeah. I did, yeah. I, at that time, I did not know who he was. And now I was like, man, that's actually super cool. 
um, A, that I guess you guys go back and he was like in your show, but like that, not super cool of me to be unaware, but I was like, that's a that's an awesome way to have a revelation of who somebody is because that show was awesome. Yeah, I mean, he he's he's a writer. He's not really an actor. Um, and he's just such a curmudgeon and he's such a pain in the ass, but he's such a, so funny and such a sweetheart. And um, I thought, I really thought he could be, like when we wrote that character, I'm like, I think you would be a great Lou and, and let's just give it a shot. And it turned out he was. Yeah. So what, so what's next for you, man? Uh, what's the road ahead? I know there's Mythic Quest uh, season two will get going and I look forward to seeing you there, but um, any other things on, on the horizon or you just kind of. Yeah, no, I got a lot, we got a lot going on, but I don't know that I can really talk about it yet, but as soon as we hang up on, on the, on the podcast, I'll, I'll fill you in. Cause we got some <laughs> stuff. I'll have some stuff for you specifically, but nothing we're public with yet. All right. Well, folks, and, uh, you know what, man, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, man. Can you, mm -hmm. can you tell me? I want to hear you say it first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say McElhinney. That's pretty, that's pretty damn close. Okay. Yes, what, that's right. What's like Mac probably? Yeah. McElhinney. Yeah. McElhinney. Uh, McElhinney, yeah. Well, a lot of people say McElhaney or they, or they just mick a mickle mickle which I get. It's, a, it's an impossibly ridiculous name. But the, 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 the proper pronunciation is McElhenney. McElhenney. Okay. Yeah. That's how it's yeah. going to be. That, yeah. And that's I, pretty I will defend that. I will make sure people fuck it up. <laughs> they correct themselves on site. Thank um, you. Well, thanks for being a guest, man. Um, much love, man. Always a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, I'm sure the audience appreciates it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, Donations, if you're feeling like it, via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. Mailbag. Here we go. Uh, this one comes from Eric in Brooklyn. And the question is, what has been the most difficult scene for you to shoot Uh in your episodic directing journey. All right, well, it comes to me pretty quickly. Um, that would have to be Single Parents, episode 112, All Aboard the Two Parent Struggle Bus, written by Allison Bennett. And the challenge really is, is it was less about the directing of the, of the talent, because those are really great kids, and so obviously, um, Child actors do present a, a, a unique challenge, um, which I'll get into. Uh, the thing that was really challenging about that episode was that I had a party scene for the kids. We had, um, you know, the five or six principal uh, kids that were on the show. And then we also had, I don't know, four or five extras. And it was a big party scene. And when you do anything with kids, you have limited hours. Um, they have maybe nine hours that they can work on set. I'm not, I, I never, I've never put this to memory because I just go by what the ADs tell me I have as far as time and then I knock it out. 
but um, might be nine hours. And uh, that in, they also have school time that you have to uh, break for after X amount of minutes. And so I had this scene in a living room and a uh, dining room, and I had to move between five or six different conversations while staging uh, action uh, in the background and connecting shots. And it was a challenge in the sense of trying to have the fewest number of setups and get the most amount of information into the frame with each shot. And so uh, using Hollywood Shot Designer, I, I plotted it all out. Um, that show shoots, um, it doesn't shoot directionally, so it's not two cameras in one direction and then you turn around, relight, and two shoot in the other direction. That particular show is cross-shooting, so you're just firing like a, a firing range, firing squad at the action and it allows you to get um, all of your sizes at the same time or all of your coverage at the same time and then you just collapse in on your sizing. So figuring out how to block that was my probably most challenging episode. Next week on episode seven of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, we will be welcoming the team behind Netflix's Atypical, creator Rabia Rashid and executive producer Mary Rolick. Uh, so I hope you will tune in and join us uh, for that. They joined me uh, in the, let's see, they were in the writer's room for season four, uh, at least Rabia was uh, from where she called in. And uh, they're moving into their final season and we sat down and talked about their beautiful show and how they work with each other to make things happen. So any more questions, hit them to the mailbag. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman at Gmail. Do all those things that you do for all the shows that you watch. Rate us on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube, uh, like or follow or whatever it is on Facebook, but uh, let it be known. And uh, other than that, you know, stay safe and spread love. Peace.